Welcome to the podcast of the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. I'm Matthew Hofarth. Today is February 10th, 2022, and I'm speaking with Stephen Weldon, who's Associate Professor and Chair of the Department of History of Science, Technology, and Medicine at the University of Oklahoma. Professor Weldon's work focuses on the ways that science and society have intersected in the modern era, particularly with respect to religion. Today, we will be talking with him about his book, The Scientific Spirit of American Humanism, which explores the American humanist movement, its embrace of science, and its engagement with religion. Thank you for joining us, Stephen. Thanks, Matthew. It's really good to be here today. To start, could you tell us how you became interested in this project? I was really interested in science as a child in large part because of people like Carl Sagan, one of the prominent humanists that I talk about in the book. Uh, these are people who popularized and explained science in a broad and expansive way. I grew up in the 70s when the creation-evolution debates were raging, and at one point I even considered myself a humanist and really became engaged in those debates myself. But I also saw a lot of other religious and religious-like things happening around me. It was the period of the counterculture, after all, and I listened to and sympathized with many of those voices as well. I practiced transcendental meditation as a kid, for example. Fast forward 20 years, and I'm in grad school, uh, looking back on my upbringing and realizing that my subsequent study of the history of science at the graduate level could actually give me insights into the scientifically infused American culture that I grew up in. I could revisit some of the people and ideas that fascinated me back then, and I could better understand how that world, how my world, came to be. And it didn't hurt that my advisor, Ron Numbers, had just written a book about American creationists that did, in some ways, the same sort of thing for him, helping him explain more about the ultra-religious worldview that he had grown up in. Your book is titled The Scientific Spirit of American Humanism. Could you tell us why you chose this title and what this scientific spirit entails? The decision for that title really arose when I was looking for something that would capture the complex way that the people that I was studying, these are intellectuals who didn't believe in God, understood science in a much more evocative way. I mentioned Sagan a minute ago. He's a perfect example of this. As one of the foremost popularizers of science in the late 20th century, he talked about it in ways that captured people's emotions. He made it clear that for him at least, science was much more than facts and process. It was his way of placing himself in the world. For him, the world that science explained gave him the kind of satisfaction that others got from religious stories and from the contemplation of the divine. So I needed a phrase that did more than just talk about science as a process. And the phrase scientific spirit came up. It was used fairly often by the humanists that I studied in the early part of their history. In the 1940s, for example, the folks that I talk about created an entire conference series about the scientific spirit and democratic faith. They used that phrase. It's a phrase that captures, for me at least, and for many of them, the ambiguity of human spirituality in a scientific age such as ours. It's ambiguous because it's a type of spirituality that is essentially disconnected, is entirely disconnected, from ideas about the transcendent and the divine. It's all about what happens here on Earth among humans, hence the title, Scientific Spirit. Stephen, could you define humanism for us? 
humanism arose out of America's long history of liberal and radical religious thought. American history is replete with religious radicals. Thomas Jefferson, Tom Paine, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and Frederick Douglass, for example, were great 19th century radicals. And they held strikingly radical ideas about religion, and that put them at odds with conventional Christians. By the early 20th century, there was then a long history of liberal and radical religious thought coming from a variety of different directions. At the time, a small group of renegade Unitarian ministers pushed a new and more modern religious agenda, one that disavowed belief in God and the supernatural entirely. But remember, these are ministers, and they are the leaders of churches and congregations, yet they still rejected traditional sources of religious authority. They wanted to keep religion, but get rid of God. One of the founders of this movement, John Dietrich, a Unitarian humanist, said it very clearly when he stated that religion must accept the conclusions of modern science in every department of learning. What they found was that there was a great thirst for a radically secularized religion, such as what they were proposing. These men were quite popular, and some of them even became regular voices on the radio. In 1933, these ministers, along with several prominent academic philosophers, signed a document called the Humanist Manifesto that laid out their ideas. After that, the movement just grew over time. And in fact, there was an entire organization, the American Humanist Association, that was founded in order to promote these ideas that was outside of the Unitarian Church. This brought together people of different persuasions who agreed on the idea that human problems ought to be the center of our focus. Now, don't get me wrong, it was never a huge movement, but it was influential because it ended up pulling in a whole host of noted intellectuals from all over the country. One of the points you make in the book is that science isn't merely a collection of facts or a set of procedures for understanding the world, but is also the foundation for many liberal social and cultural values. Could you explain how this came to be and what role the humanists, both secular and religious, played in this development? In order to answer that, I should say a few things about what some of the humanist values were. So you mentioned liberal values, and I do in the book make a distinction between liberal values and conservative values. Uh, so what were some of these things? Well, there was a kind of an individualistic streak among the humanists, but that was really moderated by a communitarian spirit. The idea of democracy really was important to them, and the idea that we come together as a society to build our world together was central to this early idea of humanism. Freedom from religious control, especially. Think of the wall of separation between church and state. The enlightenment value of uh, education, the importance of human rights, the rejection of traditional sources of authority, the rejection of nationalism, a more cosmopolitan spirit, all of those things kind of come together to help understand what the larger value system of the humanists was. Probably one of the most important aspects of the humanist value system was their understanding that things change. They thought it was crucially important to accept uncertainty and change as part of our ability to live in the world. The model for this kind of thinking was American pragmatism. The answers to our problems are not inscribed eternally in documents of the past, but are rather 
challenges to be faced and solved according to the needs of the time by people who look at the evidence rationally and carefully. When I think about how the humanists influenced the culture, I guess I'm really struck by the way that they simply brought together people and groups who already expressed ideas that were humanistic in content. That broad social and scientific outlook that was elucidated in the humanist manifestos and elsewhere was not new. They were really part of a thriving secular outlook that emerged in the 20th century. As a result, the humanists simply needed to find ways to convince others who were already espousing these views to join them. So, for example, in 1953, the American Humanist Association created an award, the Humanist of the Year, that honored people who represented their values. The awardee either did something or wrote something that made that person an icon of humanism. Over the years, it went to a whole lot of people, a lot of scientists, but a lot of other people as well. The birth control crusader Margaret Sanger, for example, the chemist Linus Pauling, Nobel Prize geneticist Herman Muller, psychologists Eric Fromm and Abraham Maslow, the behaviorist B.F. Skinner. The award's still being given. In recent years, it's gone to Alice Walker, Stephen Jay Gould, Gloria Steinem, Salman Rushdie. And last year, the award went to Anthony Fauci. The point is that it's not about choosing people with a specific ideology, but rather it goes to someone who seems to embrace a broad, modern, cosmopolitan set of cultural values, democratic ideals, and appreciation of science and its authority. During and after World War II, professional scientists became much more prominent in the humanist movement. Could you tell us how this happened and what effect it had on humanism and its public perception? Until the mid-30s, the movement was pretty much run by ministers. By the mid-40s, that had begun to change, however. As the ministers receded in power, secular thinkers came to the fore. The result was a shift away from thinking of humanism as a religion to thinking of it in terms of a philosophy or something that was distinctly not religious. And something else happened as well. There was a philosophical shift going on. On the one hand, there was an increasing interest in the physical and physiological and even the psychological aspects of humanity. The scientific study of humankind became a way to grapple with all kinds of problems of human society. Science was seen to be the foundation of technologies and medical practices that would solve our problems. One thinks of birth control or blood banks, both, incidentally, spearheaded by people who were prominent in the humanist movement. In other words, things that would empower human beings by giving them ways to gain control over our physical bodies. Likewise, understanding our psychology and the nature of human social behavior might help us learn to live better with each other. At the very least, it might help us avoid destroying ourselves in a nuclear war, which was really a major question for humanists in the middle of the Cold War, in the years after World War II. So the result was that the movement became much more focused on people who could offer us technologies, scientific concepts, and even psychological techniques that would benefit us as human beings. One of the points you make quite clearly in your book is that humanism is not a monolith. Could you tell us a bit more about the internal debates and divisions that have characterized humanism and why certain types of humanism have been attractive to certain groups but not others? Well, I'd say there are really two major debates that I deal with in the book. The first debate had to do with whether humanism was really a religion or not. 
The answer seemed obvious to the early ministers. It was. They had made it so. But as you can imagine, as the movement moved away from ministerial control to more secular control, as more scientists and philosophers began to espouse their ideas in the movement, then the whole notion of religion began to recede. By the end of the 1980s, the movement had become diverse enough that there were now organizations ranging from religious ministers to out-and-out secular humanists. A lot of words were spilled in the many debates over whether humanism was religious or not. In my view, it was really a relatively inconsequential shift um, in terms of the intellectual issues involved, but it had a lot of major organizational consequences, which I talk about a bit in the book. The second division, and probably the more important one in terms of the content of humanism, was a division that pitted two vastly different philosophical conceptions of humanity against each other. On the one hand, there was a broad, holistic outlook that aggressively attacked reductionism. These folks rejected the idea that human beings could be explained by deterministic and mechanical principles. This group championed by the followers of John Dewey, one of the country's foremost pragmatists, defended the concept of humanity that allowed them to be seen as individual actors, not controlled by deterministic forces. On the other hand, many of the humanists who entered the movement after about 1950 accepted a reductionistic explanation for humanity. By and large, they were influenced by the philosophical movement of logical positivism, a competing philosophy to that of pragmatism. Indeed, they found that the greatest power that science had was to ultimately explain human beings through deterministic laws at the physical or physiological level. By the 1960s, the reductionist holist dispute became intertwined in internal debates over the counterculture. Many of the more holistically-minded humanists were turning to ideas that seemed almost mystical to the positivist. There were encounter groups that met, and people who were deriding uh, the various kinds of deterministic psychological theories that came up in different areas. In the book, I focus on one of those. I show that the two sides collided in an all-out battle over whether the arch-determinist B.F. Skinner could be a humanist at all. The angry fights were ratcheted up after Skinner was elected Humanist of the Year in 1972, just after his book Beyond Freedom and Dignity was published. The attacks against Skinner and his ideas were based on the fear that Skinner's worldview had no place for a kind of democratic culture that was so central to the humanist outlook. Instead, they argued that this was a path to authoritarian control. In the end, both kinds of humanism flourished. There remained a kind of a democratically centered humanism that harkened back to this older pragmatist model, and then this newer kind of positivist-centered, science-based, deterministic outlook. Two of the most famous humanists of the 20th century were Isaac Asimov and Carl Sagan. How did they and other public intellectuals make humanism a part of their work and present those ideas on a public stage? I think the answer is that they didn't make humanism a part of their work. They were not effectively trying to support a movement that they had joined. Rather, I think what happened was that the humanists made these individuals, people like Sagan and Asimov, and many of the others that I talk about, they made them figureheads of their movement. 
the idea of figurehead is an interesting one. I mentioned it at one point when I was interviewing Carl Sagan, and he bristled at the word. He said he was not, in fact, a figurehead. And uh, indeed, he did not call himself a humanist. He avoided joining the group altogether, yet they called him a humanist. They considered him a figurehead. It's clear. Others, like Asimov, reacted differently. Asimov ultimately became president of the Humanist Association for a while. Indeed, these two figures uh, and the many others that the humanists brought in were part of humanism in large part because the humanists decided that there was something about their work that made them significant carriers of some aspect of the humanist tradition. The battle between humanists on one hand and evangelical Christians, creationists, and social conservatives on the other is an ever-present part of the story you tell. What can we learn from this century-long battle that can inform us about the all-too-current debates over abortion, intelligent design, and the like? Well, that is the question, isn't it? And I think there are two answers to that. First of all, as I mentioned before, when you trace the history of humanism back to its origins in American culture, you find that this liberal conservative divide that sort of runs through most of the book has been part of American culture since its founding. We go back to, as I said, Thomas Paine and Thomas Jefferson and coming up forward. So one can look at that history and see that in some ways we simply need to get used to this being a continuing debate and part of the America that we live in. That said, there is a second way to look at this as well, and I think probably one that's a little bit more useful for understanding what's going on today. Namely, that the liberal conservative divide has gotten stronger. There are things about it that have changed. And I think if you try to understand where things are at the present and the kind of very sharp divisions that we find ourselves in now, you can go back to about 1960 and begin to see the roots of that developing at that point. In the 1960s and 70s, a much more politically active group of evangelicals began asserting themselves. They feared that the rising secularism, which they saw uh, in the law, they saw in the culture around them, they saw in the schools, that rising secularism was undermining their religion. They began to espouse explanations for that that look remarkably similar to a conspiracy theory. In fact, they began to make common cause with groups like the John Birch Society. And then you get claims that the American Humanist Association, for example, was one large conspiracy to dominate America. And I look at those and I see really the roots of the kind of fear-mongering and conspiracy theorizing that we see today. Uh, so once again, it's not new, but it's become more mainstream. And I think that that's one of the things that makes the history of humanism very interesting. I spend a fair amount of time in the book looking at the period from 1960 to the present, trying to understand what's going on there. And one of the conclusions I came to was that that ramped up politicization of religion among the evangelicals 
changed humanism itself. The humanists became much more aggressive in their response. In the 1930s, the humanists were more about presenting themselves as a new religion for the world and trying to promote it more uh, as a vision and an outlook that would be compatible with uh, modern thinking. In the 1970s, that begins to change, and you begin to see humanists focusing more on combating reactionary religious ideas. They begin to attack creationism explicitly. They begin to start talking about evangelical ideas as pseudoscience. And one of the incidents that I talk about in the book that I think is very insightful is a point at which the magician, James Randi, takes on an evangelical who is doing faith healing. And he's making a lot of money at faith healing. And James Randi ultimately debunks it and says, no, this is just uh, a fraud. This is pseudoscience at, at its most extreme. And you begin to see the humanists using science in many respects as a bludgeon to attack uh, religious ideas, especially those coming out of the evangelical community. That is the general framework that I think lays the groundwork for where we are today. The book is The Scientific Spirit of American Humanism from Johns Hopkins University Press. Thank you, Stephen, for sharing your work and your perspectives with us. Thanks, Matt. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. This has been a podcast from the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. For additional resources on this and other topics, please visit our website at chstm.org. This podcast is made possible with the generous support of the Pew Charitable Trusts and the Rita Allen Foundation.